It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We analyze the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the Wagner Group, who perished in a plane crash along with several of his closest confidants. We look at that incident, reaction inside Russia, and ask what this means for Putin, the Wagner Group, and the war. We also welcome Ukrainian journalist Svetlana Moronets, who's been investigating the problems of medical provision in the Ukrainian armed forces. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 24th of August, one year and 181 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, associate editor Dominic Nichols, and spectator journalist Svetlana Moronets, calling us live from Kiev. I started by asking Francis about the extraordinary news that came out of Russia last night, the apparent assassination of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Thanks, David. If one shoots at a king, one must not miss, and if an insurrection is begun, it is death to fail. So said the philosopher Sidney Hook when reflecting on the Russian Revolution of 1917. And for many, the events of yesterday evening have proven his remark true. Indeed, that quotation or versions of it is everywhere this morning. As you say, Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, which carried out the mutiny in June, has been killed in a plane crash, Russia said last night, in what security sources believe was an assassination ordered by Vladimir Putin. Prigozhin was among 10 people, crew members and passengers, who died when the aircraft came down in the Tavir region, north of Moscow, the country's Federal Air Transport Agency said. For obvious reasons, the other passengers, fellow Wagner leaders, are being overshadowed, but they are worth discussing, which Roland will do so in a moment. The jet had just taken off from an airfield near Moscow and turned northwest towards St. Petersburg when it was struck. The end was sudden. The executive jets showed no sign of a problem, according to flight tracking data. Then, at 3.19 GMT, the aircraft made a sudden downward vertical and within about 30 seconds had plummeted more than 8,000 feet from its cruising altitude of 28,000 feet. Dramatic videos from spectators on the ground show the plane descending rapidly with its nose pointing almost straight downward and a plume of smoke and vapour behind it. It exploded twice and now it's falling. Look, it's falling, said one woman as she filmed the dark silhouette in the final purge. Even before it hit the ground, there could be no question of survivors. 
Indeed, within 30 minutes of the incident, footage was circulating on social media of the wreckage site and the charred remains of bodies scattered around large chunks of the aircraft. We understand that these bodies have already been taken to a local mortuary plane near Moscow. The remains are apparently too badly burned to identify, with one of them said to be missing a head. Among those of us who have been following this war closely, this news came as no great surprise. We've been saying on this podcast for weeks now that it was only really a matter of time when the spotlight was no longer on Pogosian that he would almost certainly be assassinated, as appears to be the case. Though the dramatic public nature of what has occurred, I think, has taken many by surprise, almost certainly intentional. Nevertheless, if one imagines that this is front page news in Russia, the opposite is true. Whilst Russian investigators said they have opened a criminal investigation into the crash, we hear that the top news stories on Russia 1 for their 9am bulletin this morning was Putin at the Battle of Kursk anniversary ceremony, another about Ukrainian equipment destroyed, the US Republican debate, fish catch quotas, South Korea protests, Fukushima and floods in Vladivostok. Last night, Russia's main TV channel devoted just 40 seconds to Prigozhin's death. It was the 14th out of 17 items in a 53-minute news programme. His death is really being marked with little more than a whisper as far as the general public are concerned. And when it is, individuals are blaming the Ukrainian government. Yet this is not a death intended for the public. It is a death intended for those who are a more direct threat to Putin. The elites, especially the military, who we know are questioning his authority And we know they're talking today. Some unnamed sources told Russian media they believe the plane had been shot down by one or more surface-to-air missiles. Greyzone, a social media channel with close links to Wagner, reported that local residents had heard two bursts of air defence munitions and that contrails in eyewitness video supported the idea that the aircraft had indeed been shot down. The crash site is around 10 miles from an Air Force base equipped with said air defence systems. The incident also happened just one day after multiple Russian sources confirmed that General Sergei Surovkin, who reportedly fell out of grace with the Kremlin over his ties to Wagner, had been dismissed as head of the Russian Air Force. Surovkin, also known as General Armageddon, of course, for his role in flattening the Syrian city of Aleppo, has not been seen in public since June now. And all of this, as I say, was taking place as Putin took to the stage to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Kursk in the Second World War. He was handing out medals to officers and soldiers fighting in Ukraine and thanking them for their service, saying, I'm proud of you and I congratulate all Russians on the 80th anniversary of the victory in the Battle of Kursk. This is evidently Putin seeking to reclaim his authority in one swift movement, a sort of Night of the Long Knives. He never forgives betrayal, we know that, and history shows that death is a safer bet for one's security than clemency. Just look at what happened to Julius Caesar. Yet I think it is vitally important not to fall into the trap many are today, namely to see this as Putin's political renaissance. The context is not a regime in the throes of victory or great success, but is arguably a failing power that is failing more each day. Russian military losses continue to be huge and the economy is perhaps an even greater problem. He also may not be able to afford to lose Wagner, of course, the key to his Africa strategy, as I laid out a few days ago. 
as Garry Kasparov, the Russian chess master and vocal Putin critic, has emphasised this morning, when a dictator is reduced to murdering members of his inner circle and fighting with and replacing his own generals, the situation is very dangerous. There is no trust among those who remain and therefore no loyalty. The knives are out and must taste blood. The distinguished historian Timothy Snyder has also emphasised that the Russian officer, Gherkin, who started the Donbass war in 2014, is in jail. The only Russian general to carry out a successful manoeuvre in 2022, Sorovkin, has been relieved of duty. And the only Russian commander to take a city in 2023, Prigozhin, has now been murdered. In this war, Russia had two notable commanders, both also war criminals. One was relieved of duty and the other attempted a coup and was then murdered. Is this what winning a war looks like? It's worth remembering, too, the Financial Times interview I referenced a few days ago with Bellingcat's Christo Grozev, who argued another second coup remains high. Prigozhin, it is worth stressing, was a maverick. He was distrusted within military circles. He was not in some way representative of elite dissatisfaction. And whilst his death may have crushed elements of subversion within the Russian state, it would not have done so in its totality. One cannot, as some are, equate Prigozhin with all resistance in Russia. It is also worth noting how Wagner responds. One Telegram channel associated with the group has already made their threat explicit. Quote, the assassination of Prigozhin will have catastrophic consequences. The people who gave the order do not understand the mood in the army and morale at all. Let this be a lesson to all. You always have to go to the end. This could all stoke the ultra-nationalists and the pro-war segment of society rather than deter them. So that's the essence of the story and some of the fault lines of discussion as things stand this morning, David. My view is that we should look closely at the reaction in Russia more than anywhere else. If Boghossian had done that, perhaps he would never have returned there. As Edwin Burke said, a king is not to be deposed by halves. Yet somehow the only person seemed not to realise that and the consequences of failure was Prigozhin himself. Thank you very much, Francis Durnley. Roland Oliphant, can I ask, what were your initial reactions to this news as it came in last night? And and also, as Francis said, to some extent, this is not unexpected, but was the method, if, if this is indeed a, a killing by the Kremlin, is the method fairly unexpected? What's your take? My working assumption, to be absolutely honest, not a shred of doubt in my mind that this was what it looked like, that it's an assassination ordered by the Kremlin in revenge for the coup, the elimination of a a potential threat and a very public punishment. Do I have absolute proof of that? No, none of us do. We've all seen the alternative theories. It It was the Ukrainians, maybe, I don't know, the pilot had an accident or or whatever. I don't frankly buy any of that. I think the working assumption, I don't think it's a reasonable working assumption, is that Prigozhin was murdered by the Russian state for the mutiny. As for the method, we're not quite clear on the method. It could be an air defence missile or it could have been a bomb on board. We'll, we'll have to wait for that. Bombs, the, the, the Russian secret services have a, a pretty good track record things like that that wouldn't surprise me at all being able to smuggle something onto the plane there was one rumor going around I shouldn't be citing the rumors on telegram but for example one idea going around was that a bomb was smuggled on at the last minute disguised as a as a lavish gift of expensive wine or something on the other hand there are these reports of, of contrails from air defense missiles the method i personally i'm, I'm not sure 
I'm not sure that's that important. I think when this happened, we all realised that although we'd parked it, we'd moved on, there were other news items going on, we all assumed Prigozhin's days were numbered, that we were all puzzled that he had survived as long as he did, that Vladimir Putin hadn't acted absolutely immediately after the coup to, so the, the mutiny, whatever you want to call it, to, to arrest, depose, dispose of this man. Um, and the fact that he was still at large, it just seemed like something that couldn't go on indefinitely. It definitely wasn't in my diary. It definitely took me by surprise. But on the whole, I, I think I think it looks like what it is, or it is what it looks like. Let's put it that way. Thanks, Roland. Of course, as we've said, Yevgeny Prigozhin was not the only person on the plane. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other individuals um, who've died and, and why they matter? Right. So um, to give them their names, the Russian authorities say there were 10 people on the plane, the 10 names released by Rosaviatsia, the, the Russian Civil Aviation Authority. It's Yevgeny Prigozhin, Dmitry Utkin, Valery Chikalov, Yevgeny Makaryan, Sergei Propustin, Nikolai Matsuev, Alexander Totmin, and then the crew members, that's um, Alexei Levshin, Rustem Karimov, those are the pilots, and Kristina Raspopova, she was the, um, the flight attendant, the stewardess. Now, of those other seven, we'll know about Prigozhin. The most significant, I think, are Dmitry Utkin, um, who was former special forces officer, who is actually the guy who founded Wagner. People, we often talk about Prigozhin as the founder of Wagner. He's not. The guy who founded Wagner was Dmitry Utkin, former Russian special forces, started off fighting in Syria in 2013 after leaving the army. Not very well. The invasion of Donbass happens in 2014. He ends up running, I, I would say, one of quite a few kind of off-the-books gangs of fighters doing the Kremlin's dirty work in Crimea and Donbass. But it's when it's when Yevgeny Prigozhin comes aboard and brings the the money, the connections, his kind of his knack of getting on with people and and getting contracts and persuading the Kremlin to to do stuff that the Wagner really takes off. But Dmitry Utkin, the original call sign Wagner, the top military commander, he's gone. The other guy who really stands out is um Valery Chikalov. So Chikalov, he's, he's also not a guy who came from the fighting side. He's a, he's a tycoon who is always in close, tight with Prigozhin and comes from Prigozhin's business empire, so associated with him well before this. Now, he, he had the reputation of being the guy in charge of, in charge of security, basically. So commercial operations, the non-military side of things, but also the, the intimidation, the attacks on journalists, all of that fairly nasty stuff. Again, very high up in, in the Prigozhin empire. Karyan, he's believed to have joined Wagner in 2016. Kusain Makaric, fought in the Central African Republic and Libya. I'm not sure Not sure I know too much more about him. Any others also believed to be fairly senior in the, in the Wagner hierarchy. Now, there are important people who are not on board from Wagner. The, the most significant absence is Andrei Troshev, Kusain Seroy. Now, he's the guy... He's sometimes called the executive director of Wagner. And he is the guy who apparently did not side with Prigozhin during the mutiny. And if you remember, after Prigozhin, uh, after the mutiny, Vladimir Putin acts very beneficently. He invites Mr. Prigozhin and members of Wagner to, to the Kremlin to talk through their, 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 their problems, their grievances. And Putin, in his own account, says that he, he's proposed that Wagner continues operating, but with Troshev in charge. That didn't happen. So he wasn't on the plane. And there are a couple of other significant figures. Um, there's a guy with a call sign Ratibor, another significant field commander. He wasn't on board. So the absolute 
top, top level of Wagner destroyed, but very senior figures still at large. Thanks very much, Roland. We'll come back later to talk about what Wagner may do now, how it can survive, if it even does, and what this means for Putin and the war. But Svetlana Moronets, can I go to you in Kiev? What's your reaction to the news we heard last night? And what's the Ukrainian reaction been that you've seen? At first, Ukrainians didn't believe in the death of Prihozhin. They thought it was one of his tricks. But when it was confirmed, it felt like a bitter happiness. Because most of people here in Ukraine would like to see Prigozhin in the court holding responsibility for all of his war war crimes, especially the destruction of Bakhmut and torturing and murdering of civilians in Ukraine, including kids. But anyway, his death brought some satisfaction and the feeling that justice can reach Russian elite with the hope that Putin will be the next. And by the way, half an hour ago, Zelensky said that Ukraine had nothing to do with the death of Prihozhin and that everyone knows who made that happen. Thank you very much, Svetlana. We'll come back to you later, of course, to talk about your latest article for The Spectator. But Roland and Francis, could we just talk about, I mean, looking, this is almost a bit like a sort of obit. Can we look back at Prigozhin's impact? I mean, Svetlana's mentioned some of the things he's responsible for in Ukraine. But could we just look back and look at how this 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 person has Im- influenced and uh, impacted the war in Ukraine and the full-scale invasion? I mean... I, 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 wonder, I do sometimes wonder whether he drew more attention to himself than, than was warranted because he was, he was a very great publicist. I think, I think there's no doubt that he played a role in the, the decision to prosecute the Battle of Bakhmut so, so vigorously. He clearly began to see that battle not only as a battle against Ukraine, but also his own personal battle with the Russian Ministry of Defense. And, 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 and a the objective was not just Bakhmut, but possibly his own political ambitions. But you, you can also say, I mean, it seems to have been his idea, or at least he got the permission from the Kremlin to start recruiting prisoners in large numbers. He is the one who therefore presided over, even if it was his commanders who came up with the, with the, with the tactics of the idea. He's the person who legitimized and pushed that idea and these huge human wave attacks that cost so many lives. And he's also, you know, I mean, Wagner's tactics are notoriously brutal, um, especially in enforcing discipline in their own ranks. Um, we all remember the, the murders of people w- with sledgehammers who were, who were deemed to be traitors, um, reports of the, the execution, the routine execution of people deemed to have broken discipline in their ranks. That said, I, I mean, I wouldn't... Wagner, Wagner played a large role in Bakhmut and they played a role in, in the breakout from Papasna in in the battle of donbass in spring other than that they weren't present in the battle of kiev they weren't really present around not particularly present around kharkiv and they're not playing a role in in the big battle in the south at the moment and and let's not forget that in the many many war crimes that have been committed in this war many of the most notorious ones were committed by regular russian armed forces including the massacre in butcher so i wouldn't i wouldn't overstate his role in in shaping the course of the war, but I certainly think he's someone who used the war as an opportunity for his own his own ambitions. Thanks very much, Roland. Francis Sternley, to you, please. I think when the obituaries of Prigozhin 
are written, it's, it's going to be an ext- have to be extraordinarily long. I mean, this is a man who was at one time a mugger, a convict, a hot dog salesman, a fine dining boss, a warlord, and then the mercenary chief who dared to challenge Putin. And of course, it will be analysis of that latter incident, which will be, I think, the core focus of said obituaries and what his true intentions were. Of course, we debated it over many hours on the podcast, including live as it was still unfolding on that Saturday. And I think historians will debate whether he really intended to launch a coup that that could see him as the head of the Russian Federation, or whether he simply sought to put pressure on the regime so that he could then gain some kind of traction and become perhaps head of the armed forces, replacing Sergei Shoyu, or something like that. That will be something we may not know for for many years once certain files are open, certain testimonies are recorded. But for me, that's the great debate of the present time. And I think we're absolutely right, as Svetlana and Roland have done, to emphasise the fact that this man is a, was a monster, perpetrator of war crimes on a grand scale across various different countries and continents. And so I see very few people celebrating, not celebrating, sorry, his death today. I think it was quite curious seeing how he evolved as somebody that some people almost came to see as a kind of an underdog almost and were sort of cheering him on. But the fact is, if, and I don't think it was ever possible, frankly, but let's say he had managed to oust Putin. He would have been somebody who would have been, no doubt, persecuting tens, hundreds of thousands of people within Russia just to try and hold on to power. And then his long term ambitions were almost certainly more ultranationalist in nature and may well have been an extension of the war in Ukraine. Although my own view, as listeners will know, is that likely if Putin is overthrown, that because of the domestic pressures on them needing to secure themselves up, it's very unlikely that they will be able to nor want to protract a war in Ukraine or indeed elsewhere. But nevertheless, Um, This man, if he had succeeded Putin, would not have been some sort of person we'd all be celebrating to see Putin gone. He is and well, I should say was a a, a monster. And indeed, the, the litany of crimes, one would need far more than a thousand words in order to do justice to them. And I think, as Svetlana said, there will be many people who, whilst they won't be Uh, disappointed to hear that he is gone. At the same time, they'll think this is another individual who has escaped justice in the sense of being in a dock and forced to hear the crimes that they have perpetrated read out to them and the the humiliation that, that goes as part of that. This is another person who may well disappear into the footnotes of history without justice being done. So there's a lot of unanswered questions about him as a man, his role in all of this. I mean, I think that he probably sought to have some time out of the limelight, do some good work, as he would see it, in Africa with Wagner and and let things decrease in, in, in Russia to a point that then, be, then people would ask for him to come back in some capacity. I reckon that, that was probably what his strategy was. And uh, yet he should have known, as I said in the opening bit, that really... His, his days were almost certainly numbered. And if he was to stand any chance of survival, then it was to lay low and very, very low, not to go back to, uh, to Russia and not to put himself in the kind of danger that he evidently has. Thank you, Francis. Roland, I've just got one more question about this, really, which is what happens now? I mean, what, what does this, do you think this means for 
the war for Putin, for Ukraine, and for Wagner, the organization. And once we've talked about that, I think we'll, we, we should move on to talk about some other updates. But Roland Olivent. First of all, I don't I don't see any immediate implications for the war because Wagner themselves have been out of the firing line since the since they claimed victory in Bakhmut was it was it back in May. So Wagner were already not in the field. They were already exhausted. They were going to need to be rested, refitted, all of that anyway. So no particular impact on on the the current battlefield situation. No particular impact on the the battle in the south. I don't buy this idea that some Wagner Prigozhin supporters are putting around on Telegram that, ah, oh, the people who killed him don't understand the mood in the army. These are traitors to Russia, all of this. I mean, how many soldiers left the front to join the mutiny? Very, very few. I think those people probably got an inflated, they're probably very angry and they've probably got an inflated sense of what they can do in their self-worth. But I, I don't I don't expect a direct impact on, on, on the military situation from this. I think, I think the the future of Wagner, and by extension, actually, the future of Russia's involvement in you know, the Middle East and Africa is a much more interesting question, because the truth is, Wagner was not, it, it was one part of, well, let's say one part of the package, if you see what I mean, because of course, it was very well integrated into Mr. Prigozhin's Concord business services. And we all know about the, the catering contracts that he had with the Ministry of Defense, and, and which once landed him with a, a criminal case against him from the FSB for, for providing bad food to poison people. That's why we call him Putin's chef. But also, don't forget the, the troll farm that was involved in the, the 2016, interfering in the American election in 2016. Don't forget his political technologists who, who can advise you on how to rig an election, things like that. These kinds of things were also part of the package that he would offer autocrats in places like Sudan or Libya or the Central African Republic, places like that. And of course, that whole empire came with a quid pro quo. Not only were Wagner offering guns for hire and hard power, they were also getting really, really deeply involved in the economies in these places, you know, seeking out and, and taking control of really important assets, usually mineral assets, gold, oil fields, that kind of thing. And of course, Concord, the company, you know, is a commercial structure. It could, it could, you know, set up a company for exploitation of the mine, but then also take, you know, take charge of the export, you know, selling the stuff, laundering the cash, getting the money back, distributing the kickbacks, all of that. And Yevgeny Prigozhin, for, for all his faults, for all the fact that he was, you know, he, he owed his very rapid rise to Vladimir Putin's patronage, he was, was, you know, a pretty good entrepreneur, a pretty good, in his way, charismatic man. These kinds of business relationships rely on, you know, that personal connection, that kind of charisma, that kind of thing. I don't really see necessarily how the Russian Ministry of Defense, who clearly want to squeeze Wagner out of these places and take over, how they're going to replicate all that. Can they replicate all that? We've always seen Yunus Bekyevkurov, the Deputy Minister of Defense, uh, landed in, in Libya to talk to Khalifa Haftar, on was it, was it Tuesday, the day before the the day before the crash? Pretty clear sign. The MOD wants to muscle in on on Wagner's territory. We know that the MOD's own private military company, Redoubt, has been clashing with Wagner over market share for a very long time. But really, can 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 you really replicate this this very unique way that that Wagner and Prigozhin projected Russian influence in Africa over the past few years? I don't know, and I don't know what you're going to do without him. I am certain, obviously, that Russia doesn't want to give up that, that influence. Vladimir Putin was speaking today to the, um, to the BRICS conference in South Africa, it made very clear that, you know, Russia is, 
is there to stay. So I, I think, I think actually they've they have removed quite a useful tool. Maybe maybe Putin felt he had to remove the tool because the tool had become too dangerous. But that is going to be quite an interesting knock-on effect how, how that pans out from this. Well, thank you very much, Roland Oliphant and Francis Dernley, for all of that analysis, and Svetlana, of course, too. Francis, can I can we move on for the moment? We'll come back to Dom Nichols, who's just joined, but let's move on for now. Oh, Francis, there are, of course, other updates from Ukraine. Can you talk us through the rest of the news today? Sure. Well, the war doesn't pause for anything, of course, and today is a historic day for Ukraine, which commemorates its liberation from the Soviet Union and the establishment of its own identity as a free nation. Perhaps that is partly why Ukraine's intelligence and naval officers are said to have carried out a special operation in Russian annexed Crimea. A spokesman told State Broadcaster that the goal has been achieved and that there were no losses, but the nature of the mission is not yet clear. Speculation has been building over said operation after Russia apparently sank a reconnaissance boat some 24 miles off the peninsula. Russian media has reported that shots were fired near a campsite in Crimea following reports that Ukraine had entered the region. According to Baza, which has links to security services, those who stopped at the campsite heard two loud shots as if from a grenade launcher. When people went out to see who was shooting, about 10 metres from the shore, they saw two rubber boats in which there were about 10 people. After firing from automatic weapons, the boats are then said to have sailed away. And as I say, there were not believed to be any casualties. Now, excuse me, last week, Dom did a very interesting defence in depth video on the Ukrainian Marines and how they operate. So I recommend listeners watch that for understanding how this kind of operation may have taken place. More of that on that story as we have it, of course. Staying on recent Ukrainian operations, Ukraine's intelligence chief Budinov has said that recent attacks on Russian airfields had destroyed two Tu-22 bombers and damaged two more. He said two were destroyed, two were damaged, two cannot be repaired. This was in an interview last night for the Ukrainian service of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Uh, Russian officials reported drone attacks on military airfields in the Novgorod region on Saturday and Shekovka in the Kaluga region on Monday. On Tuesday, British military intelligence said that Russia was likely to have lost a nuclear-capable Tu-22M3 supersonic long-range bomber in the attack on the former. So we're just learning more about those attacks which we reported earlier in the week. Elsewhere, ironically, given the fate of Prigozhin, Ukrainian troops are reportedly moving towards the eastern city of Bakhmut, according to its general staff. It said in a statement, the Ukrainian military is advancing south of the city. In that area, they are entrenched at the achieved boundaries. The statement continued, on the southern front, the defensive forces are conducting an offensive operation in the direction of Melitopol. Russian strikes, of course, continue across Ukraine. Seven people have been wounded in Herzon as the Russian military fired dozens of shells on the southern region, according to its governor. He said a nursery, shop, factory, administrative building and homes had been targeted, adding, adding as a result of Russian aggression, seven people were injured. An early morning missile strike also injured seven people in the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro, we understand, with three men and women among the wounded. Two residential buildings, commercial buildings and buses and cars in the central city were also damaged. A quick update on F-16s. There have been reports by several independent sources that Norway has decided to donate F-16s to Ukraine, which would make them the third NATO country after the Netherlands and Denmark to provide them. 
Its prime minister is on an official visit to Kyiv today on Ukraine's national day. So I think we can expect that an announcement is forthcoming. Finally, last night saw the first of the debates for the Republican Party presidential nomination in the United States. A debate Trump snubbed in order to be interviewed by Tucker Carlson. A focal point of discussion during the debate revolved around Ukraine, revealing pronounced schisms within the party. Both Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy expressed their opposition to increased financial support to Kyiv. Their contention was that these funds should instead be directed towards fortifying the US borders against the inflow of drugs and human trafficking. DeSantis asserted, The foremost duty of a US president is to safeguard our nation and its citizens. Drawing parallel... Mr. Raswami likened backing Ukraine to the ill-fated U.S. ventures in Iraq and Vietnam. By contrast, though, figures like Chris Christie, Mike Pence and the former U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley positioned aid for Ukraine as both a moral obligation and an imperative for national security. They cautioned that if Russian President Putin were able to succeed in Ukraine, it would imperil U.S. allies and potentially nurture further acts of aggression, not only from Russia, but by China in the Taiwan context. No great shocks there, but it does further underline that the front runners for the Republican nomination continue to question core elements of America's support for Ukraine. And one has to imagine how different things might be if both the Democrats and the Republicans were united on this issue, as is the case in uh, several European countries, not least in Britain. Certain lifelines that Putin is holding on to may not be active. But I think that's probably a discussion point for our upcoming US trip, David. Thank you very much, Francis and Roland. Svitlana Moronets, thank you so much for joining us. It's really good to hear from you again. You've written a devastating and it feels a really important piece on medical aid uh, to Ukrainian soldiers. To get to the heart of your piece, you wrote, uh, quoting now, Ukrainians believed that the very best care would be available for their soldiers, but the stark truth is emerging. Svitlana, what is that truth? The truth is that soldiers are dying due to poor medical provision and this problem is being ignored or even denied by Ukraine's command, who are focused on asking for weapons and pushing the counteroffensive. From one side, it is understandable Kyiv needs tools to liberate its lands as soon as possible, but we all in Ukraine want it to happen without thousands of lives needlessly lost. I talk here about the lack of evacuation transport and of evacuations that last up to 10 hours, the bureaucracy surrounding the right of procedure, the supply of medical kits that literally kill the soldiers as their quality is so bad. Of course, nobody expected that Ukraine would manage all the logistic and the medical supply immediately when Russia invaded last year, but it's been 18 months and the situation hasn't changed much. And I went to the east of Ukraine and talked with the uh, combat medics and volunteers and fighters who were complaining about, for example, Chinese-made tourniquets that those devices that are used to stop the bleeding when, for example, you lose your leg because of the explosion. So they have been losing pressure or coming apart and it led to that soldiers were just bleeding out and dying. And those Chinese tourniquets were supplied like by Ukrainian government, like by volunteers and also by Ukraine's allies. There are not any checks 
or any standards of what is going to the front line of the what is inside of those medical kits and the situation is bad not only in the front line if we talk about uh, hospitals in the Dnipro region uh, Donetsk region near the fighting their medical staff are funding the equipment with contributions from their salaries and just for you to understand the average doctor in Ukraine earns about 300 pounds a month and the nurse like twice less. And last week, the doctors I was talking to, they were raising the money to buy antibiotics and even gloves needed for treatment in the hospitals because they were overloaded with injured soldiers, but the state didn't uh, supply them with anything. With anything. Svetlana, you mentioned your time in the East uh, with a volunteer medical battalion. Could you tell us more about that? Where, where were you? What did you see when you were there? Yes, I was with the Hospitaliers. It is a Ukrainian volunteer medic battalion. We were on the edge between Dnipro and Donetsk region. It was past midnight and we were in a village drinking Red Bulls because they are working like 24 hours per day when they are calls from combat medics that they have dangerous soldiers and they need evacuation, then they just take the bus and leave immediately. So the lights were off because that village, Russian doesn't know that it is like the safe point for evacuation. And so we had to be careful to avoid the attention of their drones. And the paramedics, they were picking up six injured soldiers. And some of them were without legs. One had his leg in a bag next to him, as there is a rule that in in the war, that all belongings of injured soldiers must come with them. And that was horrible to see and just even can't describe that image when I saw the soldiers. And they were hard when we when we came to pick up them, they were hard, hard like five hours before that. And it took us four more hours to get them to the hospital in Dnipro. And it is a common period of evacuation in Ukraine right now, up to 10 hours. And Ukraine even can't use helicopters, first because there are not helicopters, and second because if they were, Russians anyway would shoot them down. And they target um, medical evacuation teams. They, they try to find them with drones and after just track them because they save lives. So those volunteers with whom I was, their task was just to make sure that the soldiers survived the second part of that trip and then in the hospital they would receive more advanced medical assistance. In your piece, you made the point that if the hospitalists didn't do their work, nobody would. Why not? Because of the lack of medical staff, of the evacuation transport, poor logistics, because most of the people do it for free. For example, hospitaliers, nobody pays them for evacuating the soldiers. They do it in free from their main work time. And the combat medics are the only ones receiving salaries and they're enlisted in the army officially. But even they are expected not to only rescue the injured soldiers, but also to fight the Russian forces. And only after that, if the fight is done, then they can rescue the soldiers who survived. And there are much less volunteers in Ukraine right now who wish to 
evacuate and rescue the soldiers for free. And the same, I met the American volunteer who works with hospitaliers, and he said the same situation is with foreign volunteers. They are not as interested or in the situation in Ukraine right now. And if there were 50 last year, this year there are less than 10. That's why there are not so many people who do that. You make the point that questions about bureaucracy and far too much bureaucracy, basically, and also corruption is part of this story, limiting the the aid that can be given to injured soldiers. Can you talk to us about that? What do you mean when you talk about bureaucracy in in this context, for example? Ukraine still has a lot of post-Soviet rules. For example, writing off of all the equipment, medical equipment or transport that is used in the war. The process of writing it off can take up to six months. A lot of paperwork paperwork and soldiers don't have time to do that. For example, if the hospital vehicle is destroyed by the fire, by the enemy fire, it is not registered as being out of action until an official investigation has been carried out. And some of the brigades I talked to have lost or all of their evacuation transport or like 80%, 50%, but they can't be resupplied because their official report doesn't acknowledge that the vehicles have been destroyed. That's why many brigades, they prefer to take the vehicles from the charities and volunteers. The same goes for medical kits because they don't need to go through this, all, the, all of these sort of procedures because they just received the vehicle, it was destroyed, okay, doesn't matter, then they look for another one, ask for donations, and how it goes. And one combat medic told me that if, for example, if the state supplies the medical drugs, uh, if they are expired, it is easier to write that have they burnt that they burnt in the house than to explain that they were used or they were expired or what happened to them because it can last for months if we talk about the corruption it's a very painful topic for ukraine and i don't want it to sound like everything what ukraine receives is being sold resold or that everybody is corrupted here it is not like that but unfortunately we have cases when for example a few weeks ago the head of ukraine's medical forces commands procurement department Volodymyr prutnikov he was accused of supplying 11,000 uncertified chinese tactical medical kits to the front line and he bought them in a company owned by his daughter-in-law and he was fired, of course, and right now there is investigation going on. But the problem is that these 11,000 medical kits are already in the front line. And soldiers who have them, if they receive injury, they can die because the what is inside of those medical kits won't work as it should be. It won't stop the bleeding as it should stop it. And that's the problem. And it's... Sometimes the aid sent to Ukraine is disappearing too. For example, in last October in Lviv, American volunteers sent to Ukraine 10,000 tactical first aid kits and they just mysteriously disappeared. And right now the U.S. is investigating this case. And there are a lot of these cases. I wouldn't say that 
always when I'm writing article like this, I'm afraid that people will read them and say, okay, we have to stop helping Ukraine because the things are getting stolen. What is the sense? And this is about people who are actually fighting about volunteers who are helping them and who are able to take care that the help received, it actually reaches the soldiers. About the state, I don't know how Ukrainian command is going to manage it because they already have a lot of going on. And But the problem exists and they have to recognize it. And their answer was that they will inspect all the medical kit in the army, but there were no guide, guidelines or standards issued for that. And they don't understand actually what is wrong and those who make those inspections, they are not tactical medicine specialists. And uh, yesterday, the head of Ukrainian medical forces, they came back from the report and they said that uh, all the Chinese tourniquets that were supplied to the army, all of them were donated by volunteers. It, it is not the fault of the state. Okay, but if, but if they decide to provide those things uh, sent by volunteers, they have to inspect them to check if they are good because there the frontline soldiers don't have time for checking them. And the same goes uh, with Ukraine allies. Right now in Ukraine, it's the problem that our government is afraid to complain about what we receive. I heard a lot the stories about the vehicle sent to Ukraine that came completely unusable. You Ukrainians had to spend months to repair them from crap uh, to for make them work on the front line. And the same goes with medical kits because sometimes people think, okay, it is better to buy 10 uh, Chinese tourniquets that cost two pounds than to buy one uh, Ukrainian or US made tourniquet that costs 20, 30, 35 pounds. But this logic is, it is not right because the bad quality tourniquets and medi medical kits, they kill the soldiers and we shouldn't let that happen. Thank you so much for joining us, Svetlana. Can I, I mean, you've painted what's quite a distressing, depressing and worrying picture of, of the state of medical provision in the Ukrainian armed forces. Did anything that you saw or heard give you hope for the future that this could be turned around at all? And of course, as always, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention as well? Uh, what I saw that as right now it is a big scandal in Ukraine and all of the activists, journalists, volunteers are talking about that and our MPs finally heard about this problem and they started like to pull the strings and asking what is happening, how it can be improved. And I know that Tatyana Osnashchenko, she was given like the final warning, if the things don't change, she will be fired and the, the chiefs of the medical forces of Ukraine will be replaced. But I don't know if it will change the situation. But, but what I know is that the volunteers, I mean, by this I mean Ukrainians who have some medical background, who know what they are talking about, and they have been checking the medical kits that the brigades have and asking what they need and then fundraising money and actually buying those things and sending them to the front line. And I know that the commanders of those brigades 
who know what is the problem and who take care of their soldiers. They replaced all the crap that they received, the Chinese crap, and actually bought the good stuff. But it is still bought by donation, thanks to donation, and also soldiers give parts of their salaries to buy the tourniquets, and it shouldn't be like that. So I think because of the public outrage that is is right now in Ukraine, the things are going to change. But how many lives have been already lost because of that? And how many lives will be lost till the things will change? And this is devastating, but I know that Ukrainian society, they are very proactive and they will do everything for their soldiers. So I hope the things are going to change for the better. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Svetlana. Uh, best of luck with your remaining uh, days and weeks in Ukraine. And we look forward to seeing you when you're back in London. Thank you so much for joining us. And all of our listeners will put Svetlana's report in the show notes so you can go and read it there as well. But thank you for joining us, Svetlana. Dom Nichols, thank you so much for joining the call. I know uh, you've had a bit of a busy day, so we couldn't bring you on right at the beginning. Could I ask you just quickly for your reaction? Let's go back to the uh, to, to today's sort of big news, the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, Dom, you wrote up analysis for The Telegraph for the paper yesterday, published today. What are your thoughts? Hi, David. Uh, hi, everybody. Happy Independence Day to our Ukrainian listeners. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? History is coming at us fast right now, just in the just in a few hours yesterday of one one day in this war, you got India landing on the moon and Prigozhin landing on Russia. And it, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. But a couple of quick thoughts for me. You may, have, I don't think you've covered them before from our, from our chats, but I just wonder whether Russia will now attempt to try and go big in the war in Ukraine. I don't think they're capable of it, anything other than missile and drone strikes, which they've been doing for well for months now. But they might try and push. We know they're not they're not really doing anything down south. They've transitioned onto the defensive, but they might try and push. They have been trying to push up in the northeast around Liman and around that that kind of area up in the in the Kharkiv area. They have been having some tactical success up there. They might try to push through there to show that they are strong and it's business as usual and nothing to see here, Gov. But I really don't think there's going to be much other much more military effect in the in in Ukraine as a result of this. The only other thing I would I would observe that I've been watching over the last couple of days. We mentioned it uh, yesterday, I think the the S four hundred air defense system that was that was very spectacularly graphically destroyed in in Crimea. Absolutely incredible footage of that going up. Been looking at that over the last the last day or so. Whenever that happened, and it's now thought that the uh, the S four hundred was co-located with a an SA-22 Pantsir air defence missile known as Greyhound in NATO NATO terminology, because the S-400 has been shown to be poor at intercepting low threat or threats with a low radar cross section. So very very briefly, the rate the way radar works, radar being radio detection and ranging, you bounce a load of radio waves off into the atmosphere, it hits stuff, metal objects, planes, and it, and it comes back and that tells you where they are and where they're, where they're going. Today's Defence in Depth, which is going up in a few hours' time, talks more about this kind of stuff. But anyway, something with a low radar cross-section that might be a, a very small drone or a, a bird or a stealth aircraft such that the radar return is lessened and it effectively scatters that radar return. So the, the receiver, the, the air defence radar, doesn't see a big blop on the on the screen as the radar's whirling around. S four hundred has been shown to be very poor at intercepting low radar cross section threats and has had to be 
interlaced with a short-range air defence system such as the SA-22. So that's what we think was there. But clearly something still got through. As I said, I think it was yesterday, not only did something get through to blow the whole place up, but there was a drone already in place. I presume it was a drone. I, I can't believe it was a it was a, a manned aircraft or or anything higher than that. But there was something already there to watch it and film it, to show us all. So again, even the SA-22 can't seem to pick up a low radar cross-section threat such as a as a drone so there are obviously still great vulnerabilities around these things s400 is is pretty close to state of the art you get with with medium long-range air defense so there are vulnerabilities still there and i'm sure that is something that ukraine will be looking at and analyzing and adapting their their tactics to get through these things to to knock out these air defense systems as part of their as part of the deep battle but i thought that was very interesting this this news that the sa sa22 was co-located and yet something still got through i'm afraid that's all i can offer for now because i've been running around in central london thank you very much dom let's move to our final thoughts then francis Durnley, would you like to go first well, thanks, David. I've spoken a lot today, but I'll be brief for fear listeners will otherwise get sick of me. For obvious reasons, journalists who have drawn the ire of Putin are on our minds this week. So I just wanted to give a quick update on US reporter Evan Gaskovich of The Wall Street Journal. His detention prior to trial has been extended by three months until November 30th, 2023. A spokesman for Moscow's court has said, of course, Mr. Gaskovich denies all charges. Whether the timing is a coincidence when Western media is distracted by Prigozhin's death. Who knows? But we will, of course, continue to monitor his case and the many others of journalists who have been arrested by the Kremlin just for doing their work. Thank you, Francis. Roland Oliphant. Uh, hello. Yes, uh, I'm sure we'll all be following the fallout of, of, of Mr. Prigozhin's um, apparent death um, in the next few days and weeks. On on other stuff, I mean, the, the great battle of southern ukraine continues i'm sure you've been talking about it on the podcast actually i've been a little bit sick this past week so i've been absent but the other thing i wrote this week was digging into this what i think is basically a nascent blame game that you can already begin to see taking place around the relatively to put it bluntly disappointing results so far of the offensive and i think I think that blame game is going to pick up pace in the next few weeks. The battle's still ongoing, not to predict anything that's going to happen there. Anything could happen on the ground. But I think that is going to be a theme. We've seen little bits of it. We've seen American officials briefing the US press. We've long had Ukrainian officials casting aspersions about why things have gone a bit too slowly. I think that's going to pick up pace in the next few weeks and months, and it could become quite politically significant unfortunately i'm not sure it benefits anybody but i think there there is definitely a danger of that and just looking at i was going to say my watch the calendar we're already at the very very tail end of summer we're only going to have a couple of months of autumn and then it will be into winter so it's about time to start thinking about what comes next thank you francis and roland dom nichols yeah back to Prigozhin, and apologies if you've if you've covered this conspiracy theories about what happened. The the theory that oh, which is which is coming out from some Russian commentators already that it was it was Ukraine. Now, on the one hand, that is an easy out for Putin to blame blame the Ukrainians. But you know, is it believable? Are the Russian public going to believe it? I don't think so. But also in the context of 
the regular drone strikes that are now hitting Moscow and elsewhere, which are that that strategy is designed to chip away at this image of Putin as an all-powerful bulwark of, of security. So would that image be further dented by coming out and saying Ukraine had managed to get inside Russia and launch such a daring attack? So I'd be, I'm going to be very interested to see what competing theories come out. I don't think any of them are necessary because I think people will see this for, for what it what it is. But it will just be fun to see the kind of nonsense they come out with. But I, I wonder if they will go near that because of the the potential blowback for people to think, well, hang on a sec, is 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 Putin all the all seeing, all powerful security god that that we that we would have uh, he would have us believe? So yeah, just keep an eye out for all the the conspiracy theories, but try and see see past them and see what effect they might have on Russian society. Thank you, Roland, Dom and Francis. Svetlana Moranets is our guest. Would you like the very final words? Yes, I would like to say if you talk about medical supplies, I would recommend to donate to charities that work directly with the frontline troops. And if you talk about the evacuation transport and the supply of medical kits, of tourniquets, of all the things that can save the lives, I could recommend the Hospitalers, uh, Charity or Leleka Foundation. And if you want to help with weapons, it is, of course, Come Back Alive Charity. So Ukrainians will be very grateful for that. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.